When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, everyone. Some exciting news to share. It is our 100th episode of Boss Files. It has been quite a journey, and I'm so glad you've been along with us for the ride. So I just got back from our Citizen by CNN conference. It's a live event with newsmakers across industries talking about critical issues. Former Goldman Sachs CEO Lloyd Blankfein joined me on stage, and we talked about a lot. He says capitalism is not dead, but it must be more fair. He was born and raised in Brooklyn public housing. He made it to Harvard by age 16 and then made millions on Wall Street. So he has known both sides of the proverbial tracks. So how does that inform him today as America grapples with vast inequality? We also talked about his Twitter feud with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders. You should check that out if you have not seen the exchange. I asked him what he thinks of Sanders' statement that billionaires shouldn't exist in America. And he told me he's open to the rich paying more in taxes. Should I pay more tax? I sure as heck would be willing to pay more tax if I could buy a uh, more, you know, a happier and less polarized society for sure. He also shared his thoughts about President Trump's temperament. Do you think that President Trump's temperament is a net positive for the country right now? No, it's not a net po- positive. I don't think anybody thinks his t- temperament is a bad okay. is a net so positive. Okay, so how much is it hurting this country and the world stage? I'm not putting words in the president's lip. He says it himself. He has a nationalist agenda. So let's jump in right now to my live conversation with Lloyd Blankfein at Citizen by CNN. I really appreciate you being here. We've, we've talked over the years. Uh, but you are in a new position. You are no longer CEO of Goldman Sachs, so you are free to say a little bit more about what is actually well, on know. your mind. I, I, I didn't even, I, I didn't remember. I had to go on Google to figure out how to tie a tie Did this you? morning. Yes. I don't believe that. Okay, so let's just dive right in. Mark Benioff, Salesforce founder and CEO, told me last week unequivocally, capitalism is dead. Is it? Unequivocally, no. <laughs> it's not dead. Um, it's not dead. It's, it, we're, we're the envy of the developed and frankly the underdeveloped, underdeveloped world in terms of our, uh, of our system. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, it has always needed to be tinkered with. There's no purity of classical capitalism. There needs to be regulation. You have people striving. They shouldn't be allowed to win and monopolize. There have to be a lot of treatments and a lot of tinkering and a lot of potentially redistribution and making things fairer, always, 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 but capitalism is not dead. I would be tinkering redistribution. with Redistribution. Well, well, let me ask you as a registered Democrat, how do you then explain why last year, according to Gallup, more registered Democrats viewed socialism positively than capitalism? I don't know. I just think we haven't, uh, we ha- people haven't been challenged. Every generation has to learn its own lessons. That's why there are cycles in history, and that's why there are business cycles. Uh, and I'm not sure everybody is talking about the same thing. You know, when we're, when we're talking about, you know, people now talk about socialism, 
and I'd say, which aspect of socialism, the socialism that, has, that wants a progressive tax, that wants to, as I said before, redistribute, or where the government pays for things that only previously rich people can afford, that poor people don't get so they, they lose their opportunity, or the type of socialism where the government plays a bigger and bigger and bigger role in the economy. If it's the former, we've always done that. You can, you can argue that this, the taxing system should be more or less regret, uh, progressive, et cetera. I think there's a lot of knowledge at this point, data, about why you shouldn't have the government own the means of production. Do you want to pay more taxes? Should you? Do I want to pay more taxes? No, I'd like to pay no taxes, but I would like to live in a civilized world where people aren't, uh, people aren't coming with torches and rakes trying to you know, kill each other. Should you pay more taxes? Should people that have made as much money as Lloyd Blankfein in the way that you made money pay more in taxes? Because I know you care deeply. We've talked for years about it, about the inequality in this country. Well, I've talked about inequality. I'm not as pessimistic as a lot of other, uh, a lot of other people. They're, they're, again, there are cyclical reasons why inequality goes up or down. You know, technological change tends to reward venture people at the expense of labor, which tends to lose its jobs in favor of machines, or in this case, electrons or digital things. So there, there's psych reasons for it, and we have to, and we, and the system has to adapt to that. You know, in other words, we have to come together and be a country. Should I pay more tax? I sure as heck would be willing to pay more tax if I could buy a uh, more, you know, a happier and less polarized society, for sure. Would that help? Would help, yeah. So I think it would help the mood of the country, and I think it would get some focus on real initiatives that we should be doing and grappling with real problems and real opportunities instead of everybody hacking at each other all the time. So Bernie Sanders. Who? Yeah. yeah. There's a history there, guys. We're going to get to it in a moment. But yes, before but you, uh, we do, yeah. and the tweets, the New York Times asked Bernie Sanders if he thought that billionaires in the United States should exist, and he said, I hope the day comes when they don't. You are like borderline billionaire-ish, ish. Should billionaires exist? Should billionaires exist? I think we should have an incentive system where people should continue to strive, and the people who have proven themselves the most productive should be, have the incentive to want to keep producing. Uh, there's a lot of instrumentalities to make sure that we don't uh, that we don't calcify billionaires in their position. There's a state tax, there are progressive taxes. There's a lot of ways of coping with it, but I am not hostile to successful people who've created things that other people want and would pay for. Frankly, that's what makes uh, that's what's improved our standard of living. Bernie Sanders put you on his anti-endorsement list. And then you two had a little bit of back and forth right. on Twitter. I said, uh, right. Let's read what you said. Don't know why Senator Sanders picks on a retiree like me. I think he's always looked down on me because he grew up in a fancier neighborhood in Brooklyn. Right. Then, There's that. Right. But, but, and then he came back and I said, you know, we have more in common than you think. Two self-made uh, self millionaires from Brooklyn. Yeah, there's that. There are also some differences, some pretty stark ones. But in all seriousness, are there any ideas of his on the economy, on equality, that you actually think are good ideas, Lloyd? Oh, absolutely. Look, he ta look. We're in a, you know, this is a the sociology of the country. We're in a political. It is a pol political moment. As every moment, we have to listen to what people are saying and respond to it. You know, you're not guaranteed stability. In the, you know, in the world. Look what's going on in Hong Kong, look what's going on in other countries, look what's going on in the UK. Mm -hmm. You're not guaranteed stability, you have to make accessions. There's the issue of ideology and right or wrong, but there's also the practicality 
of making sure that everybody throws in and can live with the outcomes. We're at a moment in time where it's so polarized that everybody's, everybody is challenging the legitimacy of the outcomes. It's making for a certain, again, illegitimacy and, um, and, stress, and stress in the system. So what ideas... So that's not good. So we have to... I think he's right about some things and even some of the things where I would be dragged along and unnecessarily ready to exceed, I exceed with the pragmatic fact that we have to get people to throw in and have to give them more. By the way, that also applies to the right also. That applies the way the left should look at the right. We are such a divided country. People have to listen to each other and work out some compromises on issues here so we all get along a little bit better. So here are some ideas to do that proposed by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. There's the idea of a wealth tax, which is not just an income tax. It's a tax on your wealth. There's the idea of Elizabeth Warren proposed having 40% of all corporate board members be you know, nominated by the employees. Right. There is the idea of, of you know, a Wall Street tax, which has even been, according to the Washington Post, considered by Joe Biden, I think, which tells us a lot if he's thinking about that. Are, well, are get, any of those good ideas? They're all directionally trying to accomplish the same thing. I think there's certain pragmatic. I mean, a wealth tax would be like an estate tax, except you have it every year. I don't know if you know this, but sometimes it takes 20 years to decide what an estate was worth. So it's hard to imagine a tax on your wealth that would have to be calculated every year that takes 20 years to calculate and for people to fight over. So there's certain practical elements of it. I think you could do it once at the end of life with an estate tax. Um, should the system be more progressive? Yes, I think I could tolerate more pro progressivity on the tax. Um, am I mad? Am I hostile at people who've been successful or who made money? I would sort of say, you know, throw in, by the way, I, I, but I wouldn't, you know, the current pitch is, I hate you guys, you shouldn't exist. I'm happy they exist. I'd like to, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to farm that field and get something out of them and have them. And, you know, when anybody adds wealth to the world, we're all beneficiaries of that. I'd like them to keep on going. And then I'd like to have a progressive system that would uh, sort of reallocate things a bit in a sensible way that would be good for the body politic. And the question is, are, are enough people benefiting from it? And I think the answer is no, capitalism could be more just. It sounds like you're saying... Well, there's already... Every, everything could be more, ju uh, more just. There's a disproportionality. Let's say, you know, we're, we're dealing in a time... I, I alluded to this before, technology. So, uh, you know, I'll make you know, some of this up. But let's say you have an Uber comes along. And because of Uber, you displace 50,000 taxi drivers. Now, all the value and all the, all the cost and all of that gets subsumed in the market cap and the value of Uber. So maybe 100 venture capitalists share billions of dollars and 50,000 taxi drivers have to scramble for a job. That's a problem, no? Well, that's a problem, but, you know, do we... But that's been a problem... In, in 1900, people left the farms and went to the cities. Yeah. There's always going to be, you know, with progress, there's always going to be these things, and it's part of a governmental responsibility mm. to alleviate the bad outcomes from dramatic and traumatic change. And if we're in one of those moments now, that's a legitimate purpose of government, and these things are directionally going to do it, but I wouldn't be so, I wouldn't associate that with the, with the poison that's sometimes espoused. So I don't think, certainly everyone here doesn't know your personal story. They know you as the guy who ran Goldman Sachs and made a lot of money doing it. You were born in Brooklyn. You were born in the Linden Projects. You made it to Harvard by 16. Your dad was a postal worker. Your mom a receptionist. How has that informed you 
now, as you think about what you do next, as you think about the inequality in America, as you think about the divide, as someone who has truly seen and lived both sides? No, you, can, you can flip everything around. I would, um, you know, I would say that I lived on both sides. My father, before he got his government job, was an employee for a while, in fact, wanted me to have a government job because I wouldn't get laid off, as he had once gotten laid off, and he liked it. And then, so I'd say, this is a land of opportunity. Then someone say, aha, you had the opportunity. What about people? You know, you can keep flipping this back and forth. I would say that I have a good, you know, I remember things. I grew up with it. Um, I'm not scarred by it because I did, in fact, have opportunity. By the way, I think opportunity exists today as much as people would like. No. As much as before, maybe. Very hard to rank different, you know, different eras. Um, but I think directionally, I, what, what I say, I once had uh, one of the po profile politicians come to me and say, the problem with you people is you just don't blah, 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 you people, meaning me, fat cat, Goldman bankers. Sachs, bankers, whatever. And I'd say, you know, and like a lot of people, every time I run into somebody, I, go, you know, I spend 15 minutes Googling them and seeing what about, and I said, you know, with all, you know, with all due respect, both of your parents were lawyers. My dad worked, you know, was a mail sorter at the post office, and I grew up in the projects. Give me a, give me a break. What are you going to tell me about what people think in that, in that context? And I have... You know, I haven't forgotten. I don't live it. I had net, net in my life. I had huge advantages. I had a tough time growing up in the projects. But guess what? After Harvard College, Harvard Law, and a life you know, was good and real jobs. Net, net, net. I did well, but I'm no. I'm not oblivious to the problems that people face uh, who start life in a less advantageous position. More from my live conversation at Citizen by CNN with Lloyd Blankfein after the break. So I'd like to talk a little politics with you. Um, David Brooks wrote last week in the New York Times a memo to the politically homeless. Let me read you some of it talking about Elizabeth Warren. On trade, she's a protectionist. Her 10-year, $34 trillion health care plan isn't paid for. Her student debt cancellation plan is a handout to the upper middle class. Trump will tell you, he, you may despise me, but she will destroy this economy. And yet, if it comes to Trump versus Warren in a general election, the only plausible choice is to support Warren, David Brooks argues. The election is about whether we can hold together a functioning nation across our economic, racial, and geographic divides. In such circumstances, a bad option is better than a suicidal one. He says you're either part of removing the corruption or you're not. Is he right? Well, that's one vote, I guess, for, uh, uh, for Warren. But seriously, this coming from David Brooks, is he right? You know, everybody, again, is directionally right. I don't, you know, it's a long, things have to play out over, uh, over, a, long, uh, uh, over a long time. I, if I had my druthers, I would say, and everybody reflexively being totally antagonistic or totally supportive, where you could flip between cable networks and see alternate universes. Don't flip. Alternate, un alternate universes. I would say, I would love to have people say, you know something? I don't like this politician. I disagree with it. But you know, the economy is not so bad. I'm going to do some of that stuff. And somebody could say, you know, this is a really tense moment in a polarized society. 
I think we really have to accede to the interests of people that I don't re that I ha that didn't vote for me that I didn't represent. I'm going to do some of that stuff also. But that's not what's happening. So I'm it's asking you about the real world and the world that we exist in today. Um, There's a cycle. We had you know people said, oh my goodness, the, the world has never been this. Uh, the politics have never been this poisoned. It's never been so polarized. I say, you know, you know, we did have a civil war. Yeah. And they said, well, that was a long time ago. But we had a McCarthy era, and we had other periods of time. There are cycles. Someone is going to come along when the world is at impasse, and all we're doing is having hearings on impeachment and county hearings and this, and nothing is moving forward on any of the real issues and problems. Somebody will come along and say, you know something? And, and nobody's getting, everyone's getting zero of what they want because nothing could get passed. Somebody's going to come along and say, run on the basis is, I'm going to get you 70% by compromising and being more amenable to listening to the other side. And that will be a wave. It'll be a cycle in that direction, too. Do, this is not the end of history. Do you think that President Trump's temperament is a net positive for the country right now? No, it's not a net po positive. I don't think anybody thinks his temperament is a bad okay. is a net so positive. So how much is it hurting this country in the world stage? Christine Lagarde just told 60 Minutes that the, the US is at serious risk of losing its leadership position, its reputation in the world. Is she right? And if she is, is it because of President Trump? Well, Christine Lagarde and a lot of other influentials in Europe, if they're not showing followership, then of course we're losing our leadership by, def you know, by definition. So the answer, is, the answer is yes. I'd say that, um, and I, I'm not putting words in the president's lip, he says it himself, he has a nationalist agenda ranks America first, and I don't think number two is, I think number two is way behind number one in terms of his ranking. I think we get a lot of benefits from our leadership position and the influence we have and our ability to have everybody accede to our wants because we display that leadership, both in turn, you know, politically, culturally, the dollar is the instrument of a reserve currency. We're huge beneficiaries of that. And I think we got great benefits from that. I knew I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to lose that. And I realize that everybody in the world is our enemies and our, our friends are trying to figure out how they could be less susceptible to the whims of the United States. So that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. Right. President Trump says if he's impeached, the stock market will crash. Will it? Uh, this is not the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that the stock price should guide everything in our lives, but I guess if there was a lever that was pulled, you know, I'm, I'm sure this will unfold over a period of time, but if there was a sudden removal of Trump, my bet, my bet is that the stock market would go down. Really? Even you, then you get a President Pence. Well, what happened after the election? I, I'm saying, but you get a President Pence then who has the same you know, outlooks in terms of economically. Raymond James just put out a note and said after the initial shock, we think the market rallies. Well, as that Pence might be. Is, Pence is predictable, traditional, conservative. And not as well known, and, and, and his authority is not as tested, and his ability and his charisma mm. is not as defined. I think, the, look, you're asking me a markets question, which is yeah. not a truth and justice question. It's not even my own predilection or desire question. I would say that if the president was suddenly removed from office, the immediate reaction would be negative, but it doesn't have to stay that way. What happens to the stock market under President Warren? Well, who knows, you know, I, 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 again, on the commentaries, there's a lot of things that are said that won't necessarily be done, a lot of things that would be sought to be done that won't necessarily be accomplished. Because as I, you know, when I last checked, it was still a system of checks and balances. It is. And, uh, and you know, by the way, you know, 
they're sort of heaving a little bit, but I think the institutions are kind of holding. Mm. Um, and so I don't know what would get done. It depends who controls the Senate as far as appointments are concerned. It, you know, who, you know, there's still a Congress and, you know, we may yet have a divided Congress. So I'm not, I'm not, enti I'm not entirely sure. I know that she probably thinks less, of, she probably thinks more of cataclysmic change to the economic system as opposed to tinkering. Mm -hmm. It's riskier, particularly risky since, frankly, our economic system is probably, the, I'm sure, is the envy of the world. If a general election is President Trump versus Senator Warren, who gets Lloyd Blankfein's support and why? Oh my God, don't tell me they've changed that too. It's not, it's not confidential still? <laughs> it is. Okay, well. So, but you have been, <laughs> you have been public with endorsements before, Hillary Clinton. Do you yep. think, are, are you behind a candidate, a Democratic contender yet? Well, if I really wanted to hurt a Democratic candidate, I would give, I would give my full endorsement. To oh, come person. on. <laughs> are you going to endorse someone or are you seriously concerned Gosh. that having, having Lloyd Blankfein behind them will hurt them in a Democratic primary? Well, let me bask in the glow of thinking that somebody might want my endorsement. I don't think that's, <laughs> I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's quite realistic, but I will, um, you know, uh, you said I'm a, I'm a registered Democrat. I supported Hillary Clinton in the last election. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see what we'll see what happens. Can I just ask you quickly before we move on to China about being a registered Democrat right now? You are still a registered Democrat, but do you believe the Democratic? Haven't kicked me out yet. Not yet. The Democratic Party reflects you still. No, pro no, probably not. I think. Look, I'm not sure who it reflects. I'd say people are tripping over it. Look. You know, one of the questions that I think is under considered is the fact that the, is the, the process, the election process as it has evolved is as a process making the world more polarized because with the primary system with 12 people running or 20 people running for now, it's not a matter of capturing a center. It's a matter of getting your committed base to actually go to the polls. So whereas the old convention, in my, and even in the general election, whereas my, the old convention was everybody will take an extreme position now, but everybody will move towards the center to capture a bigger part of the center, uh-uh, that's not the strategy. It's felt that the, the people aren't really changing their minds. It's a matter of getting them to feel passionate enough to actually go out and vote. So it moves people to the extremes. A multiple candidate system, you end up with, you know, you can win, you know, you, you can be a front runner with 20 something percent of the electorate. So everybody wants to galvanize their committed extremist 12, you know, 25%. And that is pulling everybody into that position of trying to compete for the extremes. Let me ask you about CEOs becoming. I never thought I'd be mournful to miss the days of smoke filled rooms and guys picking who the candidates would be. But at some point, we have to say. That's a better system? You know, at some point, we start to be a little bit clinical. No, it doesn't sound good to me as I said it. <laughs> but one has to, and now you shake your head. But you have to look at it, you have to look at outcomes. I mean, some in the markets. And sometimes I know what I like, I know what I believe should happen, I know I want to happen, but every once in a while I have to look at what is happening. Mm -hmm. And I would say the political process as current as manifests today. How about I ask you a question? Do you think we're getting good outcomes in terms of the best people with the best can is it yeah. are we getting the best candidates? And will the best candidates who are running for the nomination? Yeah. I think it's a really good and important question. 
and I ask it to CEOs all the time. Many of them would be great leaders in Washington, and none of them want to run because of the way it exists right now. We see so many CEOs instead stepping in where Congress has, is not acting and becoming activist yeah. CEOs, if you will. In, all, in fairness. What yeah. Doug McMillan has done at Walmart on guns, is that a, is that a No, is it's that a great, good but it's idea? not. But don't forget, there's a reason CEOs are CEOs. They're used to giving instruction, lightning bolts come out, people do things. This is a politics is not a dirty word. Politics is the art of getting things done, reconciling diverse interests. I don't know. I think CEOs would make great managers. I'm not sure necessarily they automatically make great politicians because great politicians have to cajole, bring people along, explain. See, that's not necessarily skill sets that are cultivated in even the best CEOs necessarily. But that's interesting. The Business Roundtable, as you know, just made a big change this year. They completely redefined their purpose to promote an economy that serves all Americans, essentially saying Milton Friedman was wrong. Well, I don't was know. I, I think there's a lot of pressures. You know, I think that, you know, you're alluding to the policy that they should no longer, CEOs should no longer just work for shareholders. They should work for stakeholders, presumably since you don't poll stakeholders, presumably as the CEO in his wisdom decides what the best interests of those stakeholders are. I think, in my point of view, if you were serving the interests of your shareholders, you would not be serving their, their interests if you were cross-purposes with the wider public. So I think the old system and the old regime captured um, CEOs serving the public interest so in the society Milton at Friedman large. So Milton was right and the BRT is wrong now. It's a matter of explaining things uh, and where you are on a spectrum. Personally, mm -hmm. I don't know that I would have been dying to sign that because I think it's a sub Look, I'll give you a thought experiment. Let's say instead of a group of shareholders, you had one shareholder. And that one shareholder says, go left, don't go right. So then the CEO says, well, I hear you, but the other stakeholders really want me to go the other way. So thank you for your 100% ownership of the company, but I'm going the other way. The only difference is most public companies have more than one shareholder, but they're the shareholders. And the shareholders want you to be well-liked and serve the interests of society, so the company will actually be worth something next year also. China, you have been so bullish on China. <laughs> you have been so bullish on China. When you were CEO of Goldman Sachs, you were on a, a trade mission. Way, way back 10 with, months ago. <laughs> with 10 months ago, with, with President Trump, with the administration. You told me a few years ago, this very well may be the, the, the Chinese century GDP slowing, it's slowed in Q3, China's growth. Well, not even 20% done with the century, so, so I'm not. Okay, to the slowest pace in 30 years. Do you, what's your over-under on this still being the, the Chinese century? Well, let me tell you, it's a good bet for me to make because I'm not sure I'm gonna make it to 2099. <laughs> but um, look, you can't, we may not like what's going on, and by the way, we may be doing something vis-a-vis -vis China that's actually appropriate and needs to be done. So yeah, and You've been pretty supportive of the president on the tariffs. I've been pretty, what, the question I ask when people criticize the president, now usually, usually Democrats are for, you know, with generally union backers or generally for uh, tariffs and, and control and it's Republicans that historically are free traders. We have to do something about uh, equilibrating our relationship with China. If you don't like this, what would you do? I mean, the idea that we're imposing tariffs and the issue, aren't tariffs hurting us? Of course tariffs are hurting us. There's a General Motors strike. Is the union being hurt by striking General Motors? Of course it is. But how else? But they're relying on the fact that maybe GM is being hurt more. 
how else do you get your adversary to the bargaining table unless you, th how do you get the market clearing price for a re resolution unless you can inflict more pain on them even at the cost of uh, inflicting some pain on yourself? If you didn't do this, what would the union people at GM do? And what would, what would we do vis-a-vis -vis so trying to get China to respond and be fairer competitors to us? Final question, because I'm running out of time. How much muscle does the longest economic expansion in American history still have? Other, in other words, where are you on the recession freakout meter right now, Lloyd? Well, Fine. I'm always, uh, you know, I, you know, I am the, uh, I wrote the book on paranoia, so <laughs> I'm always expecting disaster around every corner. Yes. But I would say, my base, my base test, my base, base test case is that things are still going well. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there won't be a shock. But by the way, we're existing at a moment where and most of the time shocks are bad. We can actually have shocks that are helpful. We can resolve the trade dispute. Mm -hmm. People can suddenly become more aligned. We can actually pass some legislation. There are thing, good things that can happen, not just bad things that can happen, but the base case is that the economy is motoring along fairly well, but nothing lasts forever. There's still there a cycle. Go. All right, well, keep tweeting Lloyd Blankfein because it's entertaining to follow. Thank you for your time. Okay, thank we you, Poppy. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Boss Files. I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode and people you want to hear from. So leave a review and follow me on social media at Poppy Harlow CNN. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.